Hello, everyone. This is the Connected Family Podcast, episode number 19. This podcast is produced by Connections Family Counseling, LLC, a group counseling practice located in Quincy, Illinois, that helps build resilient kids, strong marriages, and connected families. My name is Mark Vanderlei, and I'm your host. Today's episode is all about building connection with your spouse. My guest today, again, is Michelle Robison, and we're having another one of our conversations that we like to title Adventures in Overthinking It. Here now is my discussion with Michelle Robison. Welcome again to the Connected Family Podcast. My name is Mark Vanderley. I'm here with my host or uh, co-host, Michelle Robison. We're going to be having another one of our discussions that we're calling Adventures in Overthinking It. Today's topic, we're going to be covering... Uh, a number of different ideas related to marriages, as this podcast is really focused on building resilient kids, strong marriages, and connected families. And so this fits into that marriage section. Um, so we're going to start out giving a little bit of information kind of related to just some information related to marriage. Again. And so I'm going to start with that. Is that okay, Michelle? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So... Both Michelle and I, in our experience working in residential treatment centers and working in uh, with young families, kids, people who've experienced trauma, people who have been adopted, and many other types of backgrounds and experiences, come from an attachment-based perspective. And so we really see the world through this lens that has to do with, um, I, I really summarize that a lot of times when I'm talking to my clients about it, what I say to them is I say the way our early relationships impact the way that we relate to people today. That's my really short summary of what attachment is and how I view that through the lens. And one of the unique things and fun things that I've been had been on a journey with recently is really applying that attachment theory to couples work. I've in my private practice I've been working more with couples and had the opportunity to apply that. And so Susan Johnson is kind of one of the leading researchers and practitioners in that area. She's developed a model called emotion-focused couples therapy, which is based in attachment theory and uses those ideas to help couples heal from their from wounds and to heal relationships. Uh, and actually, there's a podcast. I'm not sure what number it is in uh, of the Connected Family podcast where I discuss um, the... Mar- the demon dialogues of marriage, it's called, because that's what Susan Johnson calls the different patterns or dances that she sees really, really common in the marriage in the marriage context. And so basically what happens, according to her, is she would argue that uh, when couples experience discord or difficulty in their marriage relationship, that what is really happening underneath is that each partner has different attachment vulnerabilities or attachment insecurities that are being triggered. And when those vulnerabilities are triggered, those triggers uh, cause emotional upheaval in the person. And they're doing the best that they can to be able to cope with those emotions that come from that trigger. Um, Usually, though, the way that they cope with those emotions triggers their partner. And so, for instance, uh, the protest polka or is one example of a dance that she describes. And so if I were to be in a in relationship and my wife were to do something that triggered my insecurity, 
then I would respond in a way, and the way that I typically respond is I shut down and I isolate. And we could pretend that my isolation then would trigger my wife's attachment insecurity, which could be, for instance, abandonment. My wife feels abandoned, um, creates a whole bunch of emotion in her, and then she copes with the best way that she can with those emotions, which might be to lash out or something. She lashes out, which causes me to feel defensive, and I respond dealing. Uh, and so it's this circle, circular dance that goes around and around and around. But what's really happening is each partner is triggering the other partner's attachment insecurities, and they're both doing the best that they can do to cope with that. It's just not working very well. So that's a really quick summary of some of the ideas from Susan Johnson. As I, as I summarize in that way, what are the thoughts that come to your mind, Michelle? Well, then, then what pops up for me is then what you're saying is then, and that way of interacting is what we have learned from our early history. Yeah, yeah, that right? strategy, it, I, I, coping skill, coping strategy, way of coping with the emotion is our attachment style. Right. Um, and so... And how do we get an attachment style? Well, it comes from our early relationships, right? So, right. and what I find fascinating, so this is just the crazy, amazing stuff about attachment, is that researchers have been able to find that the attachment style of the caregiver or parent is strongly correlated with the attachment style of their children. So there was one study by this guy named Van Eisendorn, who he used the strange situation protocol and the adult attachment interview. And he was able, he uh, used the adult attachment interview first with pregnant mothers and, and garnered kind of what their category would be. Then after their children were born, he used the strange situation at two years old. When the children were two years old or 18 months to two years, he we ran them through the strange situation. He was able to predict the attachment style of the two-year-old based on the adult attachment interview that was done on the mother before the child was born with wow. like 75% accuracy. So that's amazing and really demonstrates this idea that we pass on our attachment style to our children. I think we use kind of fancy language with it, so I always try to sort of summarize it and boil it down to something different, you know, because when you say, oh, we pass on our attachment right. style to our children, it sounds kind of fancy. But really what it, what it means is we learn how to relate to people by, by how we relate to our caregivers. And our caregivers teach us how to relate by the way that they relate to us. Right. Um, and I think that, that what's important to realize with that is that everyone is doing the best they can in every single situation because uh, that's the way your brain's been wired. Mm -hmm. That's the way your brain has learned to relate. And so essentially when you are in this negative cycle with your partner, your brains are responding to ways that it has responded since infancy. Yeah. And, and so you're really having to go back and retrain, rewire, redo significant <laughs> patterns yeah. that are really outside your control in many yeah. situations. Yeah. And, you know, when partners say, well, he's not even trying, um, is really invalidating 
at times, you know, when a partner is really trying to hold it together the best they can, correct? Yeah. yeah. And so I think when you begin to realize where this all starts from, it takes some of that, just like we talked about with the kids, you know, it takes some of that purposefulness out of it. Well, you're just trying to ruin my life or you're just trying to do this to me when essentially they're just trying to preserve relationship in the way that they have learned to do many, many years ago Yeah. and are doing it as, as many, many other people have said before us, the best that they can, um, if they could do it differently, they would. That's mm-hmm. Linehan. Marshall Linehan mm-hmm. talks about that. Um, and that when you are at the point that you need counseling and, and support, you know, it's really a matter of trying to <laughs> rethink how your your old patterns and your how your parents taught you how to relate to one another. Yeah. Um, and it's not easy work. It's called work for a reason. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I love that idea that you're describing, that you're highlighting of they're doing the best that they can and the the uh, shift in thinking that is required uh, that you kind of touched on. Because the idea that we're going to see our spouse and often when our spouse pushes our button, we see it as he just pushed my button. He knows what my buttons are and he pushed it on purpose. Mm-hmm. But when you can shift your thinking from that per- the the behavior to push my button is purposeful and shift that to um, he's just doing the best that he can to manage his own or her own responses is triggered himself and is, is working really, really hard. And I often with when in my work with couples, I often want to get down to like this core belief because I really believe that oftentimes these buttons that are pushed and, uh, Susan Johnson calls them attachment insecurities. They, in a, from a cognitive perspective, they boil down to one's negative core belief or one's mm-hmm. beliefs about self. So often, uh, and Susan Johnson says this, often for women, and I don't want to stereotype anybody, but it's kind of what she sees as a pattern. It's a core belief of I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and often for men, it's a core belief of... Um, well, I, let me let me let me back that up. It's I'm not good enough, um, and then abandonment are are big ones. Mm-hmm. So you know, so one partner, um, I sh- and I don't, you know, I shouldn't even put it in the the gender roles of male or female or not. But one partner feels abandoned, mm-hmm. and so then they reach out, they protest about that abandonment, and she calls it the protest polka. They feel abandoned, so they reach out desperately to their partner be with me, pay attention to me. And they might do that in a desperate way of, of going, you're never here. Why do you work all the time? All you do is spend time in the garage. Really what those things are is it's a desperate, desperate attempt to connect with their spouse. But then the partner hears those things as protest, as you're not doing it right. You're not good enough for me. You, you need to give me more. And so then that partner backs up because it's like, well, all you do is crab at me. All you do is put me down. So they back up in order to protect. And so it's this cyclical thing where one partner is reaching out desperately for connection. The other partner experiences that as putting them down and they both have to cope with that in ways that 
build distance, create distance between partners rather than connection. Right. And Harriet Lerner talks about that whole thing as pursuer and distancer mm-hmm. very much. So as far as one is clinging to and almost smothering can become smothering and the other one has to separate and distance. And that just creates, again, it's just different terminology for the same right. thing that you're describing so that people can really know that there are, uh, there are many ways to call this, but essentially yeah. it, it, it creates this dance that always feels so out of sorts where one person seems to be working harder than the other that's the perception where mm. then the other person who's distancing is just trying to, you know, get some separation or, you know, get some, uh, not to feel as you, as you're saying, not to feel like they're, they're doing something wrong. They just need mm. to, to, you know, get, get a little bit um, of their own, uh, centeredness. And I think that, you know, that, when that dance starts to happen without any real self-reflection or self-evaluation, that's when real hurts start to happen because then I think behavior does really turn into purposeful behavior. It's like, Mm. well, you know, I need to, to go get some support on this or I need to talk to somebody else about how I can deal with this. And, and then you add that triangle triangle into the mix, Mm. right? So then we add that other person into the mix sometimes to get support on how do I deal with this pursuer or this distancer. And then that person gives that person, you know, that, comfort or that support that they, um, are feeling they're lacking in whatever, um, dance is happening here. And and I think that's what leads to so many troubles because what do we know? We know that triangle bringing in that third person helps to stabilize that relationship when it's, when it's struggling. And so, you know, what, what would you say about that aspect of it? What would EFT say about how, um, people can continue to get support without having to um, lean on that other person that could really impact um, the dynamic. Yeah. Well, I think hopefully um, they're getting support. You know, let's they're coming to support from a therapist, let's say. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's one place to start, but then I think what I start, (laughs) yes, then, you know, then someone else, a coworker who, or some other person who's, you know, not invested in, in maintaining the relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that I often talk about, which comes from EFT with, with the couples that I work with, is this idea of there is going to be, which I think is related to this, there's going to be conflict in the relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to happen. So it's normal. Don't worry about that. The problem that ha- the dance, this negative interaction cycle, as Susan Johnson calls it, the dance occurs when the conflict happens and, and distance is created. The dance creates distance in the midst of conflict. What we want to get to through the course of couples therapy or the awareness of this dance is that amazingly, when there's conflict, actually you can be you can remain connected to your spouse and maybe even build connection with your spouse through that conflict. And that's where that whole idea of being able to recognize the dance and understand that, oh, my response to this is coming out of these past hurts that I've had or these fears that I have, and so is my partners. And we can actually, and there's all this stress that we're holding on to. There's this 
you know, whether it could be financial, it could be the kids, it could be work related stressors that are kind of the, the stressors that are bringing things to the surface. Um, and to realize that, oh, we can actually connect with one another. We can be each other's resource. We can be one another's secure base in the midst of these conflicts, as opposed to having to do it all on, on, on our own. The dance wants them to do it on their own. The dance creates distance and makes couples have to separate from one another and have to figure out their problems on their own. If through attachment and through connection, then the cup, the partner becomes the person that you go to for that security and to work through the challenge with someone and in connection. That's what I'm always trying to create and build towards when I'm working with couples is how do you have conflict and actually be connected to one another in the midst of that conflict? What do you say to people that say, Oh, we don't ever have any conflict. Um, I suppose that's a possibility, but I often wonder, you know, are you kind of pushing the conflict away? Are you ignoring conflict? Are you um, not addressing things that might actually be there? Um, What do you say? Well, I kind of always laugh about that because (laughs) I feel like, you know, if you're saying there's no conflict, then I mean you're really being very dismissive probably of whatever is going on. You're hiding things, you're, you know, um, but you know, there are those folks that really, um, well, we don't, you know, we don't have any disagreements. We don't have, you know, that whole premise you're talking about that conflict is normal and healthy. Mm -hmm. And I think that you probably look back at attachment styles and, and, you know, people who don't have conflict are people who, you know, have more of a dismissive way of uh, walking around the world, you know, and yeah. seeing things. And so, you know, then you have the people who are always in conflict, you know, and those are, you know, folks who are consumed with, you know, hurts and things that have happened years and years and years ago and so preoccupied with them that they can't let them go. And so mm-hmm. I think helping people to understand attachment in those in those um relation relation to those particular kinds of issues can also help people to understand where they sit within their own style of relating, you know, their own attachment Mm -hmm. style, but their own style of relating. And, you know, it, it, um, I think it does, you know, in marriages takes oftentimes when things are really struggling or you've had a lot of past hurts in your life or haven't had, um, typical, um, relationships that, you know, it's, it's pretty normal to think that you might have to go and get some support and counseling at some point in your marriage. I mean, we're always recommending new couples, right. Get some type of counseling, you know, because it causes you or puts you in a position of thinking about things that, that you've never really probably thought about before. I mean, I know that it seems that people are a lot wiser than I was when I got married. I mean, I tried the hardest I could to think about things, but you know, as a young person, I just, there was just things that were not even in my purview that it would yeah. be nice if someone had <laughs> said to me, like, have you thought about this? Like, um, I certainly thought, do you want to have kids or not? Yeah. I certainly thought, you know, but I didn't think about how, how you're going to parent those kids necessarily. Mm-hmm. You don't realize how your own, your, your spouse's parenting style and the way that they were parented, how that comes into play, um, in, in the teenage years, you know, when, when a, one of you is, is wanting to set, you know, a particular consequence and another one is saying, well, no, I don't agree with that. How mm-hmm. do you negotiate that? You know, how, how do, is, is 
And what typically happens is it, it what happens is your your spouse and you parent from the way that you were parented. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And so if my parenting style and your parenting style, the way we were brought up are different, um, that's going to create conflict. You know, yeah. you want to get that out of the way of the kids. You don't want to deal yeah. with that in front of the kids. But, you know, again, it's, it's super complicated. <clears throat> so for anyone to say that, you know, we don't have any conflict. I, I just kind of laugh. Yeah. <laughs> not in their face, of course, not in anybody's <laughs> face. But I just think about mm. myself and I'm like, okay, wow, um, we got some work to do then on that because I know I know that I'm not perfect and I know um, that, you know, I'm pretty I have a lot of knowledge about relating and 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 um, things like that. So that just means we have a lot of work to do with people who who um who just can't see that. They probably don't want to go there. You know, they just don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love most about uh, couples therapy is particularly this approach is that it's like right in the moment and you're Mm. as a therapist and what we're trying to do with a couple is create an experience in that moment of you're almost, this sounds horrible, but in some ways provoking some Mm. type of conflict, you're Mm -hmm. definitely enhancing or provoking emotion because if they can have that conflict right there in the room, you see it. Yeah, you get to see it, and then you're you're helping the couple become aware of it as well. Um, so it's like this inter. You're like in the conflict, and then you kind of take a step back from it, and you observe yourself in the mm-hmm. conflict a little bit, and and the you know you're kind of like, well, what's happening for you right now in this moment? Right. Think about their feelings. They wow, this is what I'm experiencing, and also you you often ask how are you experiencing your spouse right now? Mm -hmm. I'm experiencing him him in this way or her Mm -hmm. in this way. What do you guess is happening inside of your spouse right now? And that's where that perspective change comes because you might be experiencing them as angry and defensive or something. But if they're defensive, well, what's happening inside of your spouse when, when he or she is defensive? Well, usually we're defensive when we're scared or when we're hurt. Um, and if you can then, so then you begin to view and you can begin to then experience your loved one as, uh, scared or mm-hmm. hurt or vulnerable. And usually that's a different experience that doesn't quite happen, um, outside that when you're stuck in that negative interaction cycle, it's hard to experience your spouse or your partner in that yeah. vulnerable way because you're so, you're so amped up, um, in, in your own emotions a yeah. lot of times. And, and you're responding in a really primitive, historic manner, mm-hmm. you know, because you're responding to the way your greatest fear, which is brought about because of the way that your attachment style is, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, your fear of abandonment comes out as a result of probably having been abandoned or have having not having a, a, a parent that perhaps had depression or was maybe physically there, but not emotionally there. And so it, it's a, it's a really intense uh, dance when you're getting, when you're working with families that have um, in a, in a couple's therapy sort of way, mm-hmm. how many years have you been doing that now? Um, well, I've worked with couples for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, the EFT is something I read just a couple years ago, and I've been kind of implementing that strategy yeah. a little more. It's very fascinating. Recently. 
It is. And it's amazing. You know, what I love about it is it's very experiential. And that's, that's yeah. you know, what Susan Johnson really likes to focus on is that you're creating an experience yeah. right there in that moment, which is very also much connected to what we're trying to do when we're doing Play, right? Yes. We're trying to create an experience for this child in Play with their parent of being lovable and delightful and, right. and, and just the center of the attention of attention. And we want to, I want to create with couples this experience of um, a different dance, basically, right? They get stuck in this negative interaction right. cycle, which is the same dance. They come in and they go, we, right. fight over, we fight over the same thing all the time. And they just get stuck in that cycle. We want to create a new cycle and have them experience that, which then rewires their brain because it's a new experience, creates the new neural right. networks. And then theoretically... The idea would be that they'd be able to take that new experience and have that experience outside the therapy room. Right. If they could experience it in the therapy room. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. Very fascinating. Yeah. Now, you've talked a lot about a different term, under-functioning and over-functioning. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah. So this term, this comes, this is not my term. This is something I've heard or read in Harriet Lerner's um, books, um, The Dance of Anger and that whole idea of one partner, um, when there's this negative dance cycle going on, there's again, the, within the pursuer distancer often, mm -hmm. you have one partner who's over-functioning and one partner who's under-functioning and over-functioning might be working harder and pursuing more you know, in the relationship, it might be that, um, they're doing all of the work in the relationship and, and then the underfunctioner um, is either distancing or doing less of the work or, and so it's this whole imbalance happening. And so, um, and, and it creates a lot of tension and, and anger, you know, between the partners uh, for various reasons, of course. And so it's really trying to bring about this understanding of in order for that balance to happen, the overfunctioner has to let go and let the function, the, the underfunctioner step up mm. and the underfunctioner has to step up and um, do a little bit more trusting that the overfunctioner will allow them to, because right, what happens is the overfunctioner doesn't often trust that the underfunctioner is going to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. So then it just creates this whole thing of I'm not good enough, yeah. right? That we were talking yeah. about. They're, you're not strong enough. You're not good enough. You're not going to be able to do it. So I'm going to do it all and take care of it all. Yeah. Which this mm -hmm. just causes them to underfunction and distance even more and more and more. Yeah. And so it really is a cognitive. Um, way of having to think about, you know, uh, giving some trust to the other one, you know, to trust that they're going to, they're, they're going to let me do better, or they're going to allow me, you know, to be myself and that be good enough, not always say, well, you should, you should, you should. Yeah. Um, and, and the um, uh, under functioner over functioner is also going to trust that that other person is going to be able to rise up to meet their needs. And so, she talks again about the dance and, and about the idea of there needing to just be different steps that go into that in order to bring more of a balance and where they're both kind of putting in the same amount of effort or in the same amount of energy into trying to bring more homeostasis, I guess, to, yeah. to that relationship. But when I first learned about that, I was really kind of an aha moment for me because I'm like, 
you see that so often in so many relationships, whether it be marital or in, even in a children child's relationship. That's you know, what I was the adolescents about. we were working with, you know, the parent is pursuing, 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 and the child is setting up this roadblock. No, 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 not giving anything, not giving anything, and yeah. the fear of if I let in, then she's going to come and you know take over more. And um, and so I just found found that whole concept so fascinating. You know, in in the context of marriages and relationships and and realizing how quickly that can happen and really the it's rising out of this fear of not being close right of not being connected of not feeling like you know um we're uh, the the overfunctioner or the pursuer is worried of not being close and the distancer and the underfunctioner is feeling not good enough or they can't do it good enough and feeling took taken over you know yeah. i i have experiences of um parents who you know are really insistent of kids, you know, doing it a certain way and you have to do it this way. And, and kids finally just kind of give up or distance. And yeah. because it's like, well, whatever I do, it's not going to be good enough anyway. Yeah. And so she's, she's, she's going to consume me. It's like that whole lawnmower parent, you know, that's happening now, right. Where they're yeah. just mowing the children down because they want to get everything out of the way for them so that they can be the most successful that they can, um, in a sense creates this whole, I don't really trust you to be able to handle it yourself. So therefore I have to do it all for you. I think is kind of that same yeah. concept. Would you agree? That's really, yeah. Well, that's really the idea that was jumping to my mind as you were talking about it was how it sometimes plays out with adolescents. And I often say to parents, um, when they have, when children or adolescents have figured out that you care more than they do, or the way for them to gain power is to care less than you, then you're in trouble because that's when they start to fail out of school. They start to not show up for work or whatever, because they realize that the only way that they're going to have any type of power, any type of autonomy is it is by not caring because you care in some more than they do. Mm -hmm. You've been functioning so high. You've been doing right. it so much right. um, that the only way to have autonomy is to not care. And I often particularly something seems to be happening a lot with boys, particularly in, in the adolescent years. I have to talk with parents often about, you know, I think, the, you know, particularly if they're failing at school or something. And this is so counterintuitive. But to say, you know, yeah, they're failing their classes. I think you and I think you just have to back up. And you have to not do it anymore. You can't push them anymore and just kind of let go as the terms that you used earlier. And that's really, really scary for parents um, because then they, they well, they're going to they parents often respond. Well, they're going to flunk their classes. Yeah. And it's going to be really, really hard. Uh, the problem is you can't get out of that cycle by doing it for them. Right. Um, so you have. And it's a cycle, in my opinion, that's occurred over years and years and years that started pretty early on. Right. And by the time you get to be a teenager, when they've really begun to buck against it and are failing their classes, it's like you have to take out really, really big, drastic steps. And the drastic steps are to step back and let them fail. Right. That's um, really hard because there's huge consequences at that stage. Yeah. And that's where I think, as particularly with parents... You have to be aware of the tendency to be in that cycle and avoid it early on so that you don't get into that cycle 
so they experience the consequences of not following through, not doing what they need to do when they're younger. And those consequences then are much less severe. Exactly. But if you are functioning for the child or your spouse functioning for them early on and the dynamic develops where you're functioning for them and they're just kind of letting you do it, the consequences become more and more severe the further down the road you get. So the earlier you can be aware of that and back up from that, um, the better, because the consequences don't get aren't as bad then. That is I, very true. I think that's where you were kind of some of the thoughts you were having. Absolutely. And I mean, that, that is, that it, it's, it's, that's something that can really sneak up on parents, you know, because dynamics in family systems, again, we've talked about how that stuff comes from core issues and, and things like that is, and especially in today's society, we want our kids to be successful. We want our yeah. kids to do the well, do as well as they can. And so I would say that parents aren't doing this out of anything other than wanting to do what's best for their child. And there's so much competition, I think that it makes it, it makes it really challenging. But you're, I, I think the, the take home message is to realize when it's happening and to try to figure out how to do that early. Yeah. Well, that I, would be the, the challenge. Yeah. And I think what, what we were, what we were talking about earlier in marriages of the attachment style and everyone doing their best. So even the parent who is the overfunctioner with their child, they're that's probably very likely coming out of their attachment strategy. If they see their child not doing something that creates anxiety in them, and right. what is how do they manage that anxiety? They manage that anxiety by getting involved and by right. fixing it and by um, really working hard to resolve those things. So they're just doing their best the way that they know have known how to get through life to manage stress. And, um, you know, it also causes me to wonder about siblings, the, the impact that siblings have on that dynamic, oh man. you know, because you have children that have, um, you know, you're an only child or maybe you have um, um, other other uh yeah, it just that just really caught, made me think about you know the impact that siblings have on that whole dynamic because I think in in many situations siblings also carry up this or uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, help with the slack that might be coming mm-hmm. on sometimes and so it's yeah. really having to look to the siblings also to you know let go and let you know each of them um, take responsibility for their own behavior. In addition, the other thing, so here we go, we're over, we're overanalyzing it now. <laughs> so sibling in, impact, but also um, culture, mm-hmm. right? So we're in a culture, American Caucasian culture, mm-hmm. that really promotes and idealizes independence yeah. as compared to other cultures like a Latino culture where interdependence is really valued. Um Compared to you know other other cultures, um, it, even this discussion, one would wonder you know how a, additional culture might might view that or might yeah. understand that. That it just got my brain even thinking a little bit further down the line how how that really not only just attachment style but also culture yeah. affects. So if we're we're in, engaged in a marriage that. Um, had different parenting styles, different cultural influences, mm-hmm. um, 
how that also is going to impact the dance that goes on between you and your spouse. Yeah. And, and not yeah. even talking, you know, spiritual, religious, you know, uh, culture, you know, all of those kinds of things. I mean, it's just so multifaceted, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you bring up the topic of the siblings and I'm thinking about my own children. I have three boys and then a girl. And I think I have my oldest two are quite high fun, quite uh, active and energetic and like go getters. And I really think that the third one, because of the age differences and a different makeup of just who he is as a person, he's not as active. He's not quite as energetic. But and and so I think he came up with a strategy of how to deal with having two older brothers who are very energetic and very um, move, 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 move. And his strategy was to distant to sort of um, be less engaged in those athletic for things. He mm. like, he, for a long time, I think really, really worked hard to keep up with them physically to, you know, be a, to do the same sports that they did and to do those same types of activities. And then the age span got to be where he couldn't, not because he's, you know, incapable necessarily, but because developmentally he's not yeah. able to. And but so then he took a strategy where he he, okay, I'm not even going to try to keep up with him anymore. I'm just going to kind of, he, so he, he reads, he's yeah. more interested in art. He's more um, interested in these other type of creative pursuits. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, I think that's an example that came to my mind where, you know, the dynamic between siblings, genetic makeup, mm -hmm. uh, temperament, family dynamics, and all those sorts of things come into play. And then of course, yeah, culturally um, yeah. is another yeah. factor there. So. Well, and in our family, of course, you know, we have the two older daughters and then we have our son who our older daughters are very independent young ladies. And um, there's a story out there um, related to um, my middle daughter and my son. My middle daughter is two years older than my son. And, and in preschool or in kindergarten and, and uh, second grade, I guess, there's a story of her getting off the bus and my son having his backpack completely unzipped and opened and her following behind him, you know, getting all the contents out of his backpack and scooping them all up. The teacher has told me this, making okay. sure that they're in his backpack and zipped up and getting oh, him wow. together and ready to go to school. Huh. And, you know, that dynamic has continued to play out. Yeah. She's still now she's a senior in high school and he's a sophomore in high school. And she still, you know, is honking on the horn, waiting for him to come. Huh. You know, she's like, what are you going to do when I'm not here next year? <laughs> <laughs> and, and we laugh about that, because, but we do know it's true. But the actually the interesting thing that we've been talking about, my husband and I, is what is going to be the impact on him once his two older sisters are out of the house? Yeah. Because he is going to probably find his own independence because he hasn't had to worry about it mm -hmm. because his younger older sister has always been there to mm. just kind of make sure that, you know, he's got everything that he needs. Yeah. And we've been working on, we've been working on this whole idea of, creating independence for him opportunities. So, you know, she used to always take all the checks to school and now he has to take his own check to school and she mm. has to, you know, to turn in for things. Mm -hmm. And, um, we certainly have had times where checks get left in the car and, mm. you know, we didn't get certain things, you know, taken care of that needed to be. And, and, you know, okay, 
this is your responsibility to do that. And yeah. you would much rather sister took care of it. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting, even in the midst of, of, of recognizing it, mm-hmm. it still is, is very challenging. And I've had to do the very thing you've said, tell him, I'm not going to care about your grades. Um, I, obviously, I care more about them than you do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's not failing, but he's not living up to his potential. But mm-hmm. that's just the way it has to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, he at the end of the day. Um, you're getting B's and C's instead of, of B's and A's. And, um, and when I stopped caring, hmm. things have changed a little bit, you know? And so what you're saying is extremely true. And I can speak from experience on that, not to, to out my family so terribly <laughs> much on air, but I mean, it, it's, it's a real, it is a real challenge, you know, and it starts yeah. very young. And I do think that siblings impact it, um, mm-hmm. as well. Well, I think it is interesting to think about, okay, his siblings are going to be gone now and it'll be a, he'll have, it'll be a developmental process that he'll now be participating in. Right. And it was, it's just different for him. It happens maybe at this different stage. Uh Um, It'll probably feel good to him. I think so. First he might kind of reject it and kind of push it away and be like, I don't know if I want this, but then he'll kind of get a feeling of, Oh yeah, this is pretty good. This feels good. Yeah. I am capable. I'm competent. I can do so, this. You know? So yesterday he said, I get home and he says, Hey, take me to seven 11. It's like nine o'clock. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> and so then, um, his, I said, well, you'll need to wait for the sister to come home. So the sister takes him. And I said, you know, if you had your driver's license, you wouldn't even have to rely on her to get home. And so, <laughs> So, you know, it's, 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 it's things like that, that, um, have to kind of happen before the initiative. He's just a slower, you know, just a slower paced. He's didn't need all that independence, you know, he's comfortable where he's at and it's not a bad thing. It just is. And so Mm -hmm. I think your, your point is, is that it's a developmental process that he'll have to slowly walk through and realize, am I comfortable just waiting? You know, Mm -hmm. so if if she's not here, who is going to take me, who am I going to be able to twist their arm to take me? Cause mom isn't working. I can't get mom to do it and I can't get dad to do it. And I don't want to walk. Yeah. And I, I actually just spoke with a parent recently who was kind of concerned about a teenage son and like, Oh my goodness, what's he going to do? And, and I talked about emerging adulthood where, you know, adolescence is really extending way into the t- mid 20s, 25 or so. And then now there's also this other sort of developmental stage that's developed that's occurring now of emerging adulthood, which is kind of between adolescence and and adulthood. And, you know, really beginning to shift our view to, well, it's a development to that developmental process that. Adolescents who used to get out of the house at 18 and have a job and start buying a house and get married and have kids, it just happens later now Mm -hmm. based on culture, as you were talking about, based on the fact probably that kids aren't allowed to get jobs when they're 16 or 14 anymore. So they start to work later. And so I was, you know, hoping to encourage this parent to shift the view a little bit where Mm -hmm. they could see the process that their child was going through as that developmental and they just reached that developmental stage a little bit later and it's okay and the kid's gonna be okay right and if they can shift their view 
then that changes their emotional response to what their child is doing, which helps them to not probably not get as upset about it, not get as frustrated, anxious about it. Yeah. Which can then help them to remain connected again, building connection in that conflict as opposed to building distance, because when the parent gets frustrated with it, it creates distance. The kid senses that frustration. The kid senses the anxiety and distances self probably creates space as opposed to if the parent can be okay with it and manage their own anxiety about it, it can create connection and they can connect with their child in that developmental process and experience, which is always what we're hoping for. So, well, very good. Yeah. So thanks so much for the time again today. Um, I know. And it spans all marriages and, uh, parenting all wrapped into one when you're talking about all this stuff. So, all righty. Well, I will see you next time. Okay. All right. Talk to you later. Have a great week. You too. Thank you for listening to the connected family podcast. We're dedicated to helping you build resilient kids, strong marriages and connected families. If you'd like to continue the conversation about building connection with your spouse, please join our Facebook group at facebook.com backslash groups backslash the connected family podcast. This group consists of additional resources, discussion regarding episode topics and support for building a connected family. You can also follow us on Instagram at connections, family counseling or our website at connectionsquincy.com.